So Spud, thanks for joining us on the podcast. I'm not going to read your bio or anything. Like people can Google you and find the bio. And so I want to like capture the ungoogleableness of Spud Marshall and we'll get some through this conversation. Hopefully we'll get some more ungoogleable stuff. But we're going to start with some questions. Cool. Let's dive in. So what I have here is I have three different boxes. I don't know if you're familiar with Jan Keck. I was just on a call with him the other week. <laughs> okay, you're very familiar with Jan. Yeah, I like Jan a lot, and he has these Ask Deep Questions cards. So yes. he sent me three separate boxes, mm. these little custom extra boxes of the of the three different types that you would find in an Ask Deep Questions box. And so they will start just by answering some of these questions. We maybe do a couple. We'll see how we're doing. Whatever you pick in terms of category, I will just also do. So I will be along with you on the ride and maybe we'll learn stuff about each other. The three categories are curious. And I like to use the phrase uh, of spice. So I'm going to say this is mild. We've got brave, which is medium. Still some spice there, but it's medium. And then we've got the vulnerable, which is uh, spicy. Would you like curious, brave or vulnerable? I am happy to dive into vulnerable. So let's go there. My wife is not the most spicy tolerant folks, uh, but <laughs> when it's not actual spice, I'm happy to go right yeah, there. That's true. <laughs> yeah. This is like this is like the hot ones thing, but without yeah. us eating hot wings with spice on, we just have different <laughs> spicy questions. Yeah, that's my style. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to riffle free. You just tell me when to stop. Stop. Oh, I'm going to go again. Sorry. I cut so far deep. Stop. Okay. Now, actually, I think this somewhat, I'm going to say this somewhat ties into you a little bit because I was, I've, I was watching your TED talk and in there you mentioned, uh, one of the, your favorite questions is what's your deepest fear. And you mentioned as well that most people's answers is loneliness or being alone. So this question I think ties in, when have you felt most alone? Ooh. Yeah, we are going right there. Spicy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We went straight in. Yeah. Most alone. So I am somebody that uh, one of the things that I notice about myself is that I enjoy having a companion in anything that I do, whether that is romantically, uh, on ventures that I'm creating. I thrive when I have a second, right? Somebody right beside me. Um, one of the... Um, the aspects of my career is that it's fairly alternative. It's non-traditional. Um, I did my undergrad as a mechanical engineer. Mechanical engineers have very like straight paths forward, typically of what that looks like. And I took a 180 degree detour. Uh, and so my career right now is very kind of pieced together. I have lots of different clients and folks that I do around creative community building. And I think the spaces where I feel most lonely, um, and I'll share that this just came up recently, actually, within the last two or three weeks, are by the nature of my career that I like, I pop into different teams, I work alongside them for a couple months, a couple years at a time, and then I pop out, um, whether that's ventures I'm starting or clients that I'm consulting with, that like immediate phase right after I have to leave a team or my team is leaving me feel really, really vulnerable. Um, and I feel very like alone and needing to take that next step. I've had to navigate that with kind of the career choice I've had. So I've got used to it, but man, it, it like, it stings. And it's like, I, I can feel all like the emotion kind of bubbling up inside, like 
you know, a couple of weeks ago, a colleague of mine, who's like a very dear friend that we work together. He's like, you know, I think it's, it's time for me to move on to the next thing, which means I'm taking on this whole project myself. And so those are the moments that feel very alone. And I quickly have to try to find, all right, who's that new second. Yeah. Wow. I love the vulnerability. I appreciate it. it I'd love to, I'm going to keep following this train a little bit rather than yeah. me answer, but I'll answer in answering in this train. There is something that I think you touched on this. And I, as you were saying, I realized because I work with so many different groups too, like I'll go and I'll be with a group and I'm not often with them for much more than a week in a, in terms of like in a training mindset or, and I'll be with this group, but I often find like I fully connected by the end, right? Like I'm at day five I'm feeling like I'm a part of this group now. We've had meals together. We've been together for a long time. And it's that moment for me because I travel for work where I leave, I say goodbye, and then I'm driving either home or to my next destination, which I do feel that like pang of sadness or loneliness. And there have been many times where I've been with groups and I've said the farewells and I've got choked up. Like I'm, I can, I can, yeah. you know, I feel that like, oh God, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm I'm gonna to be really vulnerable in front of this group right now because I've connected to them. And I think that that's somewhat of the part of the work that I do and very much so the work that you would do as well, where anything connection-based brings with it, for us as a facilitator, a lot of emotional buy-in. We, like we have to invest our emotions into the thing that we do because we're trying to get that out of others. And in doing so, we push ourselves into so much vulnerability when it comes to the goodbyes. I hadn't even really wrecked really uh, thought about that to that extent but it is true it's one of the like ironic parts of who i am everybody sees me in the public persona as spud does lots of community building that that is the term that is often synonymous with the work that i do and i go in and i create these intense relationships right where there's lots of vulnerability lots of authenticity and those are like some of my deepest friendships happen in these moments that are out at a retreat center in the woods, right? On an RV trip across the country, like these intentional experiences that I curate. And then I come back to my hometown and it's like, I'm not surrounded by them. I don't have those type of relationships happening every single day. And I think that's the misnomer that a lot of people just assume that that type of community kind of carries with me. But it's it's still difficult for me to build that in my own hometown because you know I can't always craft those type of experiences. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I often... Uh, mention to folks that I am a professional extrovert, but a personal introvert. So I think that for that, those moments of like, for absolutely, I can be very sociable. And because I have to invest a lot of energy towards that in those moments, and I'll train people like, when you are a facilitator in a program, be an active participant. Don't just say this, you're going to frame an activity or an experience and then step away and watch it, right? Like actually be a part of it. But I, in being a part of it, which makes it more of an authentic emotional program and often more powerful for the participants that you work with, you have to invest. And that investment takes a lot. And those, those connections you create in a sense of community, that's not your community. You've, (laughs) you leave and you've set this precedent, but you are not a part of it. And it's so odd to separate from that community. And then when you see each other again, it's a reunion almost. It's very odd. Yeah. Yeah. The relationship happens very, very quick, right? There's a spike to it. Um, yeah, I, I'm a deep introvert, um, and yet everybody assumes I'm extroverted because they see me up on stage and facilitating large groups of people. But for me, that's actually my safe space, right? So like when I'm on stage, I can craft the energy in the room. And as an introvert, that's like a big gift for me, right? I, I don't have to step into a socially awkward conversation or anything like that. I can actually craft the experience that I would want as an introvert. But 
I, I sometimes find uh, a lot of folks and especially like college students that I'm coaching that are introverted and feel like, well, the facilitator path is not for me because it's something that I need to be extroverted to do. Uh, and I, I find the opposite to be true. I, I find introverts are some of the most effective ones that I've worked with. Let's keep going with this. When you're at a conference, because you travel and you go to, what are those part of the conferences that you find the hardest? Well, from a like a conference and experience design, I find that so many groups rely on panels and PowerPoints. And there is so much more to an experience beyond panels and PowerPoints. So that is my my motto in life is to like rid the world of panels and PowerPoints as much as possible. And and so those are the moments that sometimes I feel like disconnected is like, right, I've invested a lot of this energy to get to a certain place. And unless you're really like delivering the very specific content that I knew I was signing up for, oftentimes those experiences like I check out of. So those are difficult for me. And then it also is difficult for me like after the event, even though I know the magic happens in those really spontaneous organic spaces, um, I still have to like build up the courage um, to actually go and step into the hallway or whatever it might be. So to just put myself out there in the middle of a group, if I don't know them at all, I think one of the gifts of actually being able to facilitate and speak and MC is I quickly build relationships with like the behind the scenes folks. So like the tech crew and all of that. And I feel like I can like find my place, right? I've like got like a team of people that I can lean on, right? Going back to like, when do I feel lonely? It's like when I don't have that second. Um, So if I step into a conference and I'm just a sole participant showing up, that's really difficult for me. But if I show up as a facilitator, I've got a role, I've got a team I can lean on to, then I feel like I can kind of navigate that space a little bit better. I'm always fascinated by the people's introductions to facilitation and the the motive behind why you might step into that kind of role. Do some of the some of your own introversion and maybe the anxiety that you're suggesting, do you feel like the facilitation role or is is solving you're trying to solve the problem that you experience yourself and maybe you're the fix to the things that you experienced if that makes sense because I feel that somewhat for me I don't want to put words into your mouth yeah a little bit but I completely stumbled into the facilitation world it was not something I intentionally sought out I did not know it was a thing that I could seek out in the first place my path for me was uh, I graduated undergrad in 2008 uh, right when the economy crashed Uh, And I had a job lined up with Disney at the time. And Disney was always like the dream career path for me. I wanted to be an Imagineer. I wanted to use edutainment as a way to engage people in like really important social causes. That was the path. And so I was like laser focused on that. That's why I did mechanical engineering. And right as the economy crashed, they pulled the job away from me about a week or two before graduation. And so I was left like completely stumped. What do I do? Right? Like everything is falling apart around me. And so I just started Googling cool things to do around the world for free. And I probably made it to, I don't know, the 300th page on Google. And I found this program in Sweden where you learned, it was called the Masters of Strategic Leadership Towards Sustainability. Bit of a mouthful, but it basically taught you how do you facilitate and navigate organizations and systems to really create transformative change. Uh, The facilitation part was not something that I was like, at first, like leaning into, it was the, oh, I want to learn how to help groups create change in the world. That sounds like a group doing that. And then once I got there, I'm living in Sweden, living in a totally different culture. um, And they're using these learning techniques and learning processes that were totally counter to what I experienced as a mechanical engineer. And it just, it released a part of me where I was like, I felt like I could fully be seen. And that's when I got hooked with it. I was like, what are they doing here that I'm stepping into a room and they're what feels like no structure, like 
no classroom notes and PowerPoint and bullet points or anything like that. And yet they're unlocking this like learning experience for me that I had been craving and never realized I had. And that's when I learned facilitation and then wanted to bring that back to kind of the work that I do now. So um, yeah, I stumbled into it, not anticipating doing this type of career path. I think at the end of the day, for me, it's really about introducing participation into a group of people, right? So people might, and for example, a lot of people come to a conference gathering um, because they have some shared identity, right? Like we're all doctors or we're all accountants, right? But there's no real sense of community and there's no real sense of participation, right? I'm passively consuming things. And I think the art of facilitation is being able to tap into the collective wisdom in a group and have people's voices actively be heard and contributing to that collective wisdom. But I think oftentimes we ignore the wisdom in the room and we just expect the wisdom to be up on the stage, right? And so for me, that's what facilitation is all about. Um, And then there are creative ways to introduce like experience design into that. So I'm a big believer in like introducing wonder and how do you weave in wonder to the experiences that you're creating so that people walk away with this like sense of hope and possibility is like, I didn't know that was possible. Now I feel inspired to bring that back. So I think there's like really intentional experience designs that you can bring in. But at the end of the day, it's how do you get people to have their voice heard, to be able to be an active participant so that you can tap into that collective wisdom. How do you create wonder in your facilitation, in your programming? Can you think of an example of wonder? I mean, there there's a specific example that comes to mind and, and the, the process beneath the surface of it um, is I use something called three Ps. So pause, possibility, and participation. And I use them in that order. And if you do that correctly, people often walk away with a very wondrous experience. And so pause is like, you've got to disrupt the norm in some way, right? So whispering is like, you're suddenly causing people to pause and question the norm in the room. Wait a minute, that's not typically how we interact or how the facilitator or speaker is supposed to talk to me, right? So you get people to pause, like literally lift up from their phone, whatever you need to do to get them present in the moment. And then once you've got that attention, then you introduce these experiences and little prototypes and experiments that have people understand, oh, this is the sense of what's possible. And then very quickly follow that up with a way for them to participate in that. And so those are the kind of three steps that I use. And the example that comes to mind is uh, a couple of years ago, I started an arts and innovation center. It's called Three Dots. And it's this wacky incubator space where creatives and local change makers can really kind of try things on for size. We host events, we've got gallery space, all kinds of different stuff. And we were having this uh, facilitated discussion um, one evening, and we had lots and lots of people in our community there, and a few people that like represented positions of power. And we had one individual who happened to represent like our downtown improvement district. And we're talking in the room about, you know, what could we do that would really get Uh, people creatively engaged in our downtown, right? Creative placemaking, those type of initiatives. And the activity ended up pairing people together with different uh, nouns and adjectives, and they had to come up with ideas based on what they collected. And two participants, they had the noun cardboard, and uh, I think it was disco. And they're like, what if we create a giant cardboard mock-up of the mothership? And the mothership, for those that aren't familiar, is like this iconic, crazy stage prop uh, used by a band, P-Funk. And it's this just very, very iconic, crazy spaceship that would come down and descend on on stage back in like the 80s. And they're like, what if we created that spaceship and had it out on our sidewalks and we had a giant like impromptu dance party? Like that would get people creatively engaged in our downtown. 
And again, it was just a wacky idea that was in the facilitated process, but that was the one that everybody like latched onto. They're like, yeah, let's build this cardboard spaceship. That sounds awesome. And the, the room was just like incredibly excited and, and fired up about this. And I remember sitting beside the head of the downtown improvement district and he whispered in my ear, he's like, this is fun to watch, but I've got a lot of experience here. No one ever follows through. No one's ever going to actually do this. This is just an idea generation thing. And so he then left the room. He had another commitment. And I leaned into the group and I said, hey, here's what this person thinks about your idea. Let's show him that it's possible, right? Let's show him that he's wrong. And that's what we did. And in the next like two weeks, the most spontaneous build project happened. People just randomly would come in on their days off work. Um, and we built this crazy spaceship thing out of like aluminum foil and cardboard and fog machines shot out the bottom. And then we put on this crazy dance party. And I remember uh, I was like, all right, we got the spaceship. We had a lighting designer lined up. I was like, the only thing we're missing is like a DJ. So I put a call out to my network and they're like, oh, we know this guy who's DJing for the Jonas Brothers tomorrow night, but he's got tonight free. Why don't, why don't he come by and he can do the whole DJ party? And so we had this like professional DJ set up and this magical event popped up and then it was gone just like that the next day. And for me, that's like this small moment of wonder. And we did that many years ago. And that little prototype, right, that experience that people got to taste has now turned into this giant block party thing. We call it the Pew Street Shutdown. Thousands of people come out on a regular basis, right? But it all started with this tiny little prototype, this little experiment that weaved in wonder. And for me, that's what like facilitation and experience design is all about. What do you think contributed some of the earlier stuff to maybe leading towards that wonder? I don't want to like isolate that and be like, well, that was a rare occasion and that one that time worked. I want to be able to like justify and prove that th- these things are happen often, right? Like this is there's a there's a process. So what what what's the process by which maybe you start that? I think people naturally get into kind of a negative headspace. And I think one of the an art of facilitation is getting people into this like really appreciative inquiry, like let's understand the assets and like the valuable things around us that we might otherwise overlook. Uh, and I think that's that's an art form that it takes a lot of practice as a facilitator to get people into that headspace. One of the activities that I like to do that puts people in the opposite headspace immediately because that's sort of people's default norm is to identify all the reasons why something won't work uh, is an activity called Dr. Evil. And you just have like, what could we do that would make this problem exponentially worse? And people love coming up with those ideas, right? It's really hard to come up with like the good ideas, but it's really easy to come up with the bad ideas. And so you have people just create this like extensive list And then simply tell them, just do the opposite. Whatever you just did, what would the opposite idea of that be? And it's a really easy way to get people out of their default mindset of like this negative, like looking at all the reasons why something won't work and flip it into this appreciative inquiry. And so um, that's often like a technique that I'll use. There's different types of facilitation tools, but I love that Dr. Evil activity just to quickly like acknowledge where people come from. Because I think if we just assume everybody's coming in this very generative, like hopeful, we're going to identify all the ways that this is going to work. I don't think that's the norm. We need to recognize where people are stepping into and then help them move beyond that. So one of the things that I, I really care about is how do you sneak this into people's norm? Um, and so, yeah, I work with some groups that are like on the cutting edge fringe of like alternative learning and social innovation, and they eat this stuff up, right? It's not difficult to tell them that this is a valuable way of learning and getting a group to interact. 
But then on the reverse side, I have some clients. I do a lot of work in kind of the government space. And so I work with the VA. Um, and so when people think of like organizations that are really kind of traditional and maybe in their box, the VA and Veteran Affairs might be one of those organizations that just kind of bubbles to mind. But beneath the surface, there's actually people within that network that are doing such incredible innovation work. And what I see as my role with an organization like that is how do I sneak in some of these participatory design processes into their norm? And I just had a conversation today with one of these clients there. And oftentimes when we're designing a summit or a conference, I'll get a sense of where do they fall on the spectrum of like comfortability when it comes to doing this type of work. And so I'll like throw out, I'll pepper out a couple ideas and say, tell me which of these don't align, which one excites you. So for example, the Dr. Evil activity, I shared that with one of the groups a couple of days ago and they're like, whoa, that's too much for our group. We, we can't go there. It's like, okay, I've got activities that are a step beneath that, right? That are still getting people into that kind of participatory mindset, but maybe are not stretching them too far. And so I kind of look as like my facilitator cookbook of like the spectrum of how much am I stretching people into a new way of interacting. Um, and I have certain activities that I know is like, I could insert this into any group uh, and convince them that this is a thing that's really valuable for their network. Um, and so once I get that one experience, it's like they've tasted it, then they want more, right? And then I can kind of weave in the bigger layers. But I think oftentimes facilitators come in and it's like, well, we've got our, our process that we use. We just want to like stick to that. I'm always trying to find like ways to just scaffold people into it a little bit. Yeah, I think that that cookbook you referenced, the ability to read the group, see where they're at, adapt and change. I think that that's a huge strength to someone who's experienced in the world of facilitation. I think that early on, we might only have so much, right? Like so much activities that we could pull from. We don't have that repertoire. And if something doesn't work, we don't know what to do and it flops. Is there something that you've learned that is counter to what you learned early on about facilitation that you think like in the more recent years, you're actually questioning that the way you do this is actually not right. Like I like to try to think critically on some of the work that we're doing and start to pick. I'm, I've started picking holes more recently on like, well, I'm not entirely sure that the way I was told was accurate. Is there anything that you might have? Yeah, I mean, the thing that initially comes to mind is, and going back to our very, very starting point in this conversation of that feeling lonely when you walk away from a gathering, I don't think that's something that just you and I and other facilitators feel. I think the participants feel that. And so I really have questioned and, and come to analyze is like, in what ways am I teeing people up to leave an experience so that they don't have this disappointing flop on the other side? Uh, because I, I think if it, that might actually be a bigger disservice to them, right? Is like, oh, I can only experience that high if I have a facilitator in the room and the right people that have signed up. Like, So I've really kind of questioned the way that I leave a gathering so that people really have the tools and the support network to know you can go and build this back in your community. And I think that's why in the realm of facilitation, I often lean a little bit more towards the like the community building language, the necessary facilitation language, because community building for me is a very long-term investment, right? It, it takes years and years to build the relationships. And like, I can go deliver a 30 minute, 60 minute activity that I know is going to get people to like a really vulnerable, emotional state, really connected. Like I've got those tools. It's way harder to sustain that over five years in your town. Right. And it's like, I'm interested as a facilitator and how do I support that part of the process rather than just the, the initial kind of weekend gatherings and one-off workshops um, that I initially kind of came into this space with. I want to repeat that for people listening, because I do think that 
what you're touching on is a critical thing that we, in fact, we were talking about this as a staff yesterday. We were trying to think of what an essential quality of a training that we might lead has, like what are the essential qualities beyond the content. And I think that something we were deciding that as a team, what we're really good at is thinking long-term, long view, not short band-aid fixes to a solution. Like if someone asks, calls us up and say, we'd love you to facilitate a program where we want something on communication or connection, rather than say like, oh yeah, we can fix that right now. Like what's the holistic kind of long-term view? Because I think that that's true. It's certainly true of myself. When I first started in this field, it was one day, half day, few hour programmings that I was doing. Right. And it was never enough to affect any form of actual change. It was often enough to elicit or reveal, illuminate the gaps and say, wow, yeah, you're right. You really aren't great at communicating. Okay, well, goodbye, team. <laughs> Thanks for the money. You know, like, yeah, it never felt like it was actually achieving. And so I think focusing yeah. on how do we leave and how do we truly set up clients or customers or the communities that you work with in a way that's setting them up for success in the long term. I think that that feels more effective. Absolutely. And there's a, a framework or a process called peak end rule, where like of an experience, the only two things that people remember are the one peak moment and the mm -hmm. end, the last 5%. Uh, and I think as facilitators, I think there is a really critical role in creating those peak experiences, right? Unlocking something in a group, right? Like you do need those one off moments, but I've really been focused on that last 5%. And where does that last 5% go? Most, I would say 95% of the groups that I work with now are on a long term commitment, like no shorter than six months. I don't really take on one off gigs anymore just because I find there's always going to be a need for that. Um, but for me, it's like I want to be able to build long term relationships with the folks that I work with. And if a minimum is a six month contract, that first three months is completely discovery. Like you might think you know what the issue is or the way that you want me involved in the team, but really like you got to take three months to just like sift through the cracks and figure out what are the actual needs here and then design something in response. So yeah, that I've kind of uh, shifted my entire kind of consulting and facilitation career uh, based on that premise. To wrap up this conversation, what is something that you are currently working on that you're really excited about, passionate about, what's fueling you, what's filling your cup at the moment. You don't have to say the client name, but like maybe what the type of work is that you're doing that's just you're really pumped about. This is going to be a bizarre answer because it's something that I'm not involved in, and that's what's filling up my cup. So I am somebody that starts lots of social ventures, lots of nonprofits, different companies to address different needs. And over the years, I'm based in State College, Pennsylvania. I've started multiple different companies. And I get so excited when I see one of those organizations end and end in a really intentional way, not just like crash and burn or just fizzle out, but like be really intentional is like, we've solved the need that we set out to solve in the first place. So uh, most recently, one of the co-working spaces and innovation labs that I started over a decade ago, um, they shut their doors down. They realized we created the culture change in our town that we wanted to see. And the part that got me really jazzed and filled me up was one of the other organizations that I helped start, Three Dots, which was the one responsible for the, the spaceship party. Um, they called me up and they said, hey, what are you doing tonight? We want you to come over. We're collecting all of the furniture from that original organization, and we're acquiring it because we're in the process of turning it into something else. Uh, this cool like creator, artist, studio space something that I had dreamed about for years, but wasn't ever able to get there. I had to build all the like instrumental fundamental pieces. And so 
it was so filling to be able to see things that I had created out in the world and like knowing when they needed to shut down, knowing when they needed to pass the time, which groups that were prepared to do that and to not be involved. And like, again, as a facilitator and like thinking about what's the long-term systemic change that I'm creating is like, I'm not going to be involved in all these things. And so to be able to see that happening without having any role in it was incredibly humbling and like really filling. There's that phrase of you plant trees that you never get to see grow and you have got to see one grow. And that's an enviable place to be in. So uh, that's very, very cool. And it's a credit to the work you put in, right? Like you actually get to see the fruits of the labor and you're not picking the fruit. I don't know if that uh, analogy works, but... Yeah, we can run with that. (laughs) We're running with this analogy. (laughs) Well, that's some delicious fruit. Thanks, Spud, for this conversation. This is a short window into hopefully some of the ungoogleable world of Spud Marshall. Um, I encourage people who are listening to this or who are interested and intrigued, I'm going to throw all the details, how you can find out more in the description of this. I'll also, if it's okay with you, Spud, put your email address in that description. If people want to reach out, he's giving me a thumbs up. If people want to reach out, they can do to learn more about the work that he does in creative community building. It's pretty awesome. And I'm excited and psyched that we got to have this conversation because I feel like we are simpatico in so many things. And it's been a real joy and pleasure just to be able to chat for these last few minutes. Absolutely. Thanks for bringing me on. Anyone that has another neon purple background, uh, I am more than joyfully ready to talk to. Thanks once again, Spud. And uh, I wish you all the best in the future. Thanks, Ren. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for giving. I think I'll pass the guy. (laughs) 